In January of 1527, a young man by the name of Felix Manns, who was a resident of Geneva, Switzerland, he was also a member of an Anabaptist Baptist church, was told by the official government that he needed to stop preaching against infant baptism. Part of his belief system as an Anabaptist was that people should be baptized after conversion, not as a child. And we've talked about that before, and he was preaching that in Geneva, Switzerland. And after being told not to, he refused and continued to preach against infant baptism. Felix Manns was arrested, he was bound, he was taken before the entire town to the shores of frozen Lake Geneva. And in front of his friends and his family, on the order of the reformer John Calvin, Felix Manns was thrown into the frozen lake to drown and to die from freezing. Now the reason that man's death is so significant to us is because it is the first documented death that we have of one reformed group killing another reformed group over disagreements in theology. They'd been facing persecution from the Catholic Church ever since they began to issue the Reformation. But here, just ten years after Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, went and hammered those 95 theses on that Wittenberg door that we count as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, many of the Reformers had already forgotten the very things they were fighting against. And sadly, Manz's death was just the beginning of bloodshed that began to spread all across Europe for the next 300 years as religious group fought religious group. And the sad thing about those deaths in our history is that most of them were not just the result of disagreements over theology, but rather they were over a reform that many of the reformers of the day decided wasn't important enough to keep fighting for. But Baptists decided it was. And for the next 250 years after the Protestant Reformation, Baptists and Separatists alone stood up for, were persecuted because of, they argued, they spread, and they died for the cause of this one reform, this one doctrine. And it's the very same doctrine that allows you and I to sit in this room this morning and worship freely. It's the doctrine of religious freedom, or what we might call freedom of religion. Now in this sermon series that we've been going over, we're calling it This Is Us because we're examining what we believe and why we believe it and why that's important. And we've been building a foundation on what we believe by looking at Baptist distinctives. What does it mean to be a Baptist church? And I know some of you come from different faith traditions. And some of you grew up in a Baptist church where you had training union and Sunday night church and you know all of these different beliefs and distinctives. But many people today have no idea even why we believe it and why it's so important. But of all the doctrines that we've talked about, of all the distinctives that we've looked at, none besides religious freedom has the firm foundation built on the Baptist faith. All of the other distinctives that we've talked about can, can be found in the Presbyterian faith or the Methodist faith or e- the Lutheran faith or even some of the other branches that have branched off of those faiths. But it was the Baptist that stood alone against a tidal wave of persecution to ensure religious freedom. We've been looking at all of the beliefs that 
formed Baptist distinctives. I told you I was going to give you five Baptist distinctives. Us as Baptists that we're Baptists. What makes a Baptist a Baptist? And you could go 15 or 20 that are listed in our statement of faith, but we've just chosen five. Five that are included in every Baptist statement of belief that distinguish us from every other denomination. And to do that, we had to go back to the Reformation. That's why I mentioned Martin Luther. We had to go back to the Reformation and look at some of the founding principles of the Reformation because they build upon one another to get us to these Baptist distinctives. And so we've looked at some of the different issues. We talked about sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That as Christians, as Protestants, we believe that the Bible is our sole source of authority. It's not the Bible in culture or the Bible in popular opinion or the Bible in creeds or the Bible in what the church says. It is the Bible and the Bible alone that dictates how we live our faith. We also looked at the two, sola fide and sola gratia. Those are Latin words that Martin Luther hammered there on the witness door, which means that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at solus Christus, which means Christ alone. That we believe that the only way that you can have a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ alone. Christ in Christ alone. But we also believe in that, that the only mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through the church. You don't have to go through rituals or, or saying certain statements that you have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. And as these build upon one another, it's kind of like a building block, and each one is interlinked with the other. We realized last week that if we are all have access to God through Jesus Christ, then that means each one of us, every person, has direct access to God. That you can hear from God and you can talk to God no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. And that each one of us on our own, can hear from God. We called that the doctrine of the priesthood of the believers. And last week we built on this doctrine, the priesthood of the believers, that if each one of us has access to God, if each one of us can be in God's presence without needing a church, without needing anyone else, then that means that every person, and we called it soul competency, every person has the right on their own to choose whether or not they will accept Christ or reject Christ. No one should be forced. No one should be compelled. Everyone has a right and the freedom to be able to make that choice on their own. But that soul competency also requires a responsibility, and that's the responsibility of soul liberty. And again, we looked at it last week, and if you are behind, you can catch up on our podcast page. But soul liberty tells us that not only do we have the freedom to hear from God, but each person on their own, can read the Word of God and understand and hear from God from this book. And we each have the freedom to be able to determine what this book tells us to do. And we have the freedom to live our lives according to this book as we see fit as long as it doesn't interfere in the rights of others. And that's a big deal. And I know we spent a lot of time talking about it last week. But this idea and this principle that you and I, and I told you last week, it's what makes Baptists such argumentative group. Because if everybody can read this book and decide on their own what it's telling them to do and how they should live, and you've got a hundred people all doing that, then you've got a hundred different opinions about what's right and what's wrong. And I shared last week that we had to be careful in the warnings I gave you, especially when it deals 
deals with non-essentials, those things that the Bible is not clear on, those things that the Bible doesn't talk about. But when you begin to think about that principle, this idea that you and I can read the Word and interpret the Word, and we have freedom to follow our convictions and hear from God, then naturally the only place you can go to flow from there is the idea of freedom of religion. The only way you can truly guarantee that every person has a right to stand before God and choose on their own, to individually be responsible for the actions. The only way that we can have a right that you can choose to live for Christ however He leads you to live. You can worship in whatever church that you want to worship, however way that you want to worship. The only way that those things can be guaranteed is if there is a freedom of religion. And that led Baptists to separate themselves from most of the other Reformed movements. It led us to stand on the principles that we called the freedom of interpretation and the freedom of conscience and the freedom of practice. These groups that broke away were known as separatists because they didn't agree with whatever was happening in the other Reformation churches because in the next hundred years after the Reformation, almost every one of the main Reformed groups began to wed themselves to the state that they were formed in. Over the next hundred years after the Reformation, that by the 1600s, almost every Reformed group now became a church that was sponsored by the state. A church that was allowing the state to dictate how the people in that state lived and worshipped and followed God. They didn't have the freedom. And they justified it. They justified it to themselves by saying, if we gave everybody the right to choose how they wanted to worship, to choose where they wanted to worship, to choose really how they wanted to interpret the Bible, then it would be chaos. If we allowed people the freedom to choose, the reformers said, then, then somehow it would break down moral law. Somehow it would break down the laws of our nation. So the only way to guarantee that that doesn't happen is if we have one state-sponsored church. And it was this idea of a state-sponsored church that led to the bloodshed all throughout Europe, Asia, and even into the continent of the United States of America. In Switzerland, under John Calvin, when John Calvin, which is the Presbyterian faith, took over the role as the state-sponsored church of Switzerland, it was also the state-sponsored church of Scotland, you could be burned at the stake as a law, burned at the stake in Switzerland, if you skip church. Can you imagine You could be beaten, you could be whipped, and you can be publicly humiliated if you broke one of the Reformers' doctrines in Switzerland. Less than 25 years after the Protestant Reformation, one of Calvin's best friends, Michael Servetus, was burned at the stake simply because he disagreed with Calvin in one area of his Reformation. In Spain in 1567, a thousand Dutch Protestants were murdered by the Catholic Church simply because... They were dissenters simply because they didn't follow the state church of Spain. Dutch Protestants rebelled against that Catholic church and in their own they started a war that lasted 10 years, burned over 500 churches and killed over 1,000 between the Catholics in southern France and northern Spain and the Protestant Dutch. In France, the French Catholics killed and slaughtered the Huguenots. The Huguenots were known as Dutch Reformers. The Dutch reformers rebelled against them. This also caused a three-year-long war in which over 15,000 Christians and Catholics were killed simply because they disagreed. In England, under Elizabeth I, the Anglican Church killed over 1,000 Catholics because of their Catholic faith. They considered them traitors. 
in Germany, the place of Martin Luther. Germany decided to start a war to clear out Germany of anyone who didn't agree with the Lutheran faith. And they started with Catholics, they moved to separatists, they moved to dissenters. And before it was over, it lasted 30 years. And they estimate that over 100,000 German Christians were killed because they couldn't get along. And all throughout that history in Europe, each one of those groups continued to kill and persecute and punish the separatists. You see, the separatists didn't have a state-run church. The dissenters, the Anabaptists, didn't have a state-run church. So no matter where they were, they were persecuted and they were killed. So that by the end of the 1600s, almost every nation in Europe and in Asia had a state-sponsored church. Just to give you a rundown, in the Netherlands, the state-sponsored church was the Brethren. In Switzerland, it was Presbyterian. Scotland, Presbyterian. Italy, Spain, and parts of France, it was Catholic. In Germany, it was Lutheran. In England and parts of France, it was Anglican, which is the Church of England or Episcopal. In Russia, it was the Eastern Orthodox Church. In Turkey and Greece, it was the Eastern Orthodox Church. In the Middle East, it was Islam. And the problem with having a state-sponsored church is that the church uses the power of the state to force and coerce people to what they believe. It meant that the state, along with the church, alongside the church, were the only ones who decided what you could believe, where you could worship, and how you could worship. They were the only ones who decided who was the official clergy. They were the only ones to decide who could hold office, who could hold a public place or a public position. And worst of all, every person that was a member of that nation paid a tax that went to financially support that state-run church. Now, many of you may not realize, but that is still the case in many nations in Europe today. But Baptists all along saw that as a direct contradiction to the idea of free will. Believe that in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve free will to choose whether or not they were going to be obedient or disobedient. And we believe that coercing, forcing people to do something against their will goes against the Word of God. And we also, as Baptists, believe it went against this principle of soul liberty, those choice of conscience and choice of, of how we were going to practice and choice of how we were going to interpret the Word of God. Because as Baptists, we stood on the principle all the way from 1611 to today that the only way there can be free worship is if there is a free state. If you're coerced to worship, if you're coerced to obey, that's not obedience. It's not worship. And God doesn't want your worship or your obedience if it's forced at the point of a spear from the government. And so Baptists fought back. And in 1612, in England, one of the very first Baptist leaders, a guy by the name of Thomas Elvis, wrote a book. And it was called The Mystery of Iniquity. And in that, he laid out principles on why Baptists believe in religious freedom. And he also explained how Christians across the English Empire are being persecuted simply because of what they believe. To make matters worse, he decided to send a personal copy to King James, who was the king of England at the time. And he wrote on the cover of this book that he wrote to the king that said, "...the king is a mortal man and not God." Therefore, the king has no power over the immortal souls of his subject to make moral law and ordinances. And he has no law to set spiritual lords over his people. 
In his book, The Mysteries of Iniquity, Thomas Helvis wrote this, We believe that state religions have always and will always inevitably employ government resources and power to coerce compliance and participation with the tenets and beliefs of their certain religion, and they will always oppose all of the forms of worship. Well, needless to say, Thomas Helvis was arrested. And he ended up dying in prison. But his co-pastor there in England, a guy by the name of John Smith, his fellow Baptist pastor, kept the flames of religious liberty burning. And in the very first statement of belief of Baptists, what's called the First London Confession, it's where we get all of our statement of beliefs as Baptists. In 1611, one of the very first principles was this principle of religious liberty for all. And it's a principle that you and I today take for granted. For the last 300 years, people have been dying so that we could have religious freedom, and you and I take it for granted. There are over 5.6 million people around the world today that are living in countries that do not have religious freedom, in countries where they are persecuted for their faith, where they are killed for having faith that is different from what the state says. And you and I who have the freedom to worship when we want to, how we want to, where we want to, without worrying about people busting down these doors and killing us all, simply because we're Baptist, we take it for granted. Helwes and Smith said the reason that they stand on this idea of religious freedom was from chapter 5, very close to the argument that we saw in Romans 14 last week. I want you to listen to what to the church at Galatia. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And and if there was nothing else that you get, then you need to underline that. For it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul tells you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. If you think a little law is going to do it, then you need to obey the whole law. For you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ, and you have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await the Spirit through righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision or uncircumcision that has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He goes on and explains what that freedom means. You see, what Paul is telling the church is that that freedom cost Jesus' life. And you and I must do everything we can to guard against ever allowing any of those freedoms that we have in Christ to be stolen, to be diminished, or to be taken away, whether it's another church, whether it's another person, and especially if it's a government. Paul is saying that we must stand on the principles that tell us that every person has a right to choose whether to trust God or to walk away from God. Every person has a right to read this book the way they want to read it and interpret it the way they want to interpret it and follow it the way they feel the Holy Spirit is leading them to follow it. We've been set free and these verses remind us that we can't allow those freedoms to be robbed. We can't allow those freedoms to be diminished. And the early Baptists stood on this principle because they felt like the only way God would truly be honored and worshipped is if He was honored and worshipped freely. It's not freedom when a government says that you have to worship here or there and you can only do it this way or that way. And Baptists have stood on that principle from the beginning. 
You understand it was this principle of religious freedom that led the pilgrims who were separatists to leave the old world and come to America. But unfortunately, it didn't take long after the pilgrims got here to find the same problems in America that was found in Europe. The problems followed them. And by the 1700s, most of the colonies in the United States had adopted a state-run religion. In our early history of America, many of the colonies, when they became established and in their constitutions, their state constitutions, they became aligned with one religion or another religion. In Maryland, it was the Catholic Church. In Massachusetts, it was the Congregational Church. In New York, it was the Dutch Reformed Church. In Virginia, it was the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church. And the same results that were happening in Europe began to happen in America. The First Baptist Church of Boston, because it was not a congregational church, they refused to pay taxes to support the congregational church. So the government, the state government, the colony government, shut the church down. They boarded the doors, they arrested the members. If you were in Maryland and you were not a Catholic, you couldn't get married unless you did it in a Catholic practice. It would not be recognized by the state and your kids would be illegitimate. If you were in Virginia, they determined that only ministers that were Anglican could hold weddings. Only ministers that were Anglican could lead a church service. So if you decided with your fellow friends to go and hold a church service and you invited a Baptist minister to come lead it, and an Anglican minister was not there, you could all be arrested. They decided that if you weren't Anglican, if you weren't Catholic, if you weren't brethren, then you couldn't serve any of the state offices. You couldn't be a sheriff. You couldn't be a postmaster. You couldn't be a judge. You couldn't be a representative. Even in the First Continental Congress, those representatives from those states had to be a part of that state-run religion to be approved. Only in the state of Rhode Island, which we've talked about before, where Roger Williams who was a separatist, left New England. He was pushed out by the pilgrims. And he formed his own state on the basis of religious freedom. And Roger Williams, when he established the first Baptist church in America, in First Baptist Church of Providence, Rhode Island, he wrote in his church constitution these words. For magistrates and governments have no power in setting up the form of church government or electing church officers, or promoting any one church or another, or punishing any church practices. And churches, he went both ways, and churches have no authority, even though as individuals in the commonwealth they have authority, but churches in and of themselves have no authority of erecting alternative forms of government, or electing their own civil authorities, or inflicting civil punishments. And this radical, revolutionary idea of a separation between the church and the state, of somehow this religious freedom for all, began to burn and spread. Several years later, William Penn, when he began to form and found the state of Pennsylvania, used the very same words that Roger Williams wrote. And in those two states, in those two states or colonies alone, people of all faith were welcome. It was said that in Rhode Island, you might have a Jewish person next to an Islamic person in the marketplace. You may have an atheist next to a deist, a Baptist next to a Hindu. All were welcome. And the most important thing is, even if you didn't have faith, you were still welcome. 
This was a revolutionary idea, and it formed the foundation for where we are today. At the very first Continental Congress, after hearing all the complaints from people in Virginia and Maryland and New England and North and South Carolina about a state-run religion, the first congressman decided they wanted to come up with a solution. And there was a solution that was spreading throughout Europe. It was what's called religious toleration. And they said, we are going to implement a law of religious toleration. It's working in Europe now, and maybe it'll work in America. But the Baptists stood up and said, religious toleration is because freedom is not the same as freedom. The Baptists said, toleration is just a concession from the state. Freedom is a right from God. Toleration is something that God endows. They said toleration is based on the benevolence of the government in charge, which means, yes, the government in charge now may tolerate our faith, but another one may come along and not tolerate our faith. Freedom is based on the Word of God, and they rejected it. Then after the War of Independence, when America gained their independence, the Continental Congress decided once again they had to come up with a solution. They were hearing from the people in the colonies. And so this time their solution was instead of the already recognized religious states, they were going to add three more religions to be recognized as official state sponsor. They said, we'll add Presbyterian and Methodist and Baptist. And once again, the Baptist said, that's not enough. We don't want to be recognized by the state. We don't want to be a part of the state. And in their response to the Continental Congress, they wrote this. True religious freedom believes that the sole obligation of human authorities and government is to protect, ensure, and vigil in their exercise of their God-given rights to their own heart. For religious liberty is a natural and inalienable right to God according to the dictates of their conscience, and to be unmolested in that right, so long as it does not infringe upon the rights of others. And it was this letter, and men, Baptists like Isaac Bacchus, and in Virginia, John Leland, that continued to write, continued to meet, continued to pester with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. It was those men standing on this principle that led to the First Amendment of our U.S. Constitution to include the idea of religious freedom. Those Baptists were foundational in causing it to happen. So that in 1791, the First Amendment included these words, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof. There should not be a state-run faith. And the government has no right to dictate how, when, where, or what we should worship. Now, it really didn't become codified in all the states until 1865 and the 14th Amendment because the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Amendment, said that states had to follow the national law. But most of the states had already abolished their state-sponsored freedoms. Understand this, and there's some confusion in the church. The Constitution of our country is not a religious document. There's no mention of Christianity There's no mention of Jesus Christ, even though most of the men who wrote it were Christians. Why did they not mention Christianity? Why did they not mention Jesus Christ? Even though at that time Christianity was a majority religion in the colonies of the United States, because they didn't want to build a country based on one faith and one religion. They wanted to build a country based on the freedom of all faiths. And what Baptists fought 
What Baptists died for was not the idea that the Baptist church is the most important or the Christian church is the most important, but that all churches have a right to worship whoever they please, however they please. And you and I have got to learn that we have a responsibility to stand on that. That this is a nation built on religious freedom of all faiths, or even no faiths. It was this very right that led John Locke, who was a French philosopher and a politician, writer of political principles, that said this about Baptist. Freedom of conscience, unlimited freedom of mind, was the first trophy of the Baptist. For it was the Baptists who were the proponents of absolute liberty, justice and true liberty, equal and impartial liberty. Freedom, freedom, and freedom. Alex de Tocqueville, who was a religious writer, philosopher, that was visiting America after the Revolution and looking for France to see what this democracy in America was all about. He was asked as he left, what is the one thing that stood out to you that made America different from every other nation in the world? And he said, it's simply their freedom of religion. De Tocqueville said, the supreme contribution of this new world to the old world is the contribution of religious freedom. And you and I need to understand of all the foundational truths and principles that I'll talk about, all the things that mark us as Baptists, it is this doctrine of religious freedom that has had the greatest impact on Christianity around the world. But I want you to hear me this morning. The battle is not over. You and I in the church cannot sit back and rest in our freedoms. Every year in this country there are Hundreds of cases making their way to the Supreme Court that are trying to undermine and rewrite the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause that are found in the First Amendment. There's a rallying cry in the United States of America that is based on the most misunderstood phrase in American politics. And that is the phrase, the separation of church and state. You need to understand that that phrase is not mentioned in the Constitution. That phrase came from Thomas Jefferson writing a letter to the Danbury, Virginia Baptist Association in 1802, after the Constitution had been written. Jefferson wrote a letter to them to guarantee, to promise them, that the state would never interfere with the church. And he used the phrase, separation of church and state. But his idea of separation in church and state was promising to protect the church not the state. The idea of separation of church and state was so that the free church could always exist in a free state. But it's been taken out of context today for just the opposite. The First Amendment of our Constitution was never to be a wall shielding the secular world from Christian influence. It was never meant that faith shouldn't be involved in government, that someone's Christian faith shouldn't be expressed in the political world. It was to ensure that a free state always guaranteed a free church. And religious freedoms in America are under attack today like never before. And the sad thing about it is, it's not the government coming to take them away. It's Christians not paying attention enough to just let them go. Our culture and our society today, and and they want you to have the freedom to follow God, but they want you to do it on their terms. In other words, we have a society and a culture who has rejected God themselves, but they want to tell us as Christians how and when we're supposed to live for Him. 
They want to mandate where and when we can live out our faith. They want to tell us how we can do it and how we can't do it. They want to tell us what godly actions are acceptable and what godly actions are unacceptable. These very same people who reject God now want to dictate our relationship to God. It's an affront to religious freedom. You see, they tell you and and they express to you, it's okay if you worship God, just keep it to yourself. It's okay if you want to be a Christian, just don't live out your faith in the marketplace. And certainly don't bring that God to work or to school or to the ball fields or even cemeteries. Maybe you read this last week, the government's being sued because of crosses that are found in our national cemeteries. There is a group wanting to go into any national cemetery and take down all of the crosses because it's a religious symbol. They said you can live your faith, just don't tell other people about Jesus or talk about Jesus because you might offend them. You can be a Christian, but don't build your business on the precepts of the Bible or the truths of the Bible. You can be a Christian, just don't show off your religious images like a cross or Ten Commandments or a t-shirt with a phrase that might offend someone. You can be a Christian, but certainly don't stand on those moral principles that the Bible teaches. And sadly, for years and years, this spiritual battle was subversive. It was below the surface. Only those that were keenly aware could hear it and could see it. But now it is as out in the open as anything else. And that this battle is being waged every day in our media. It's being waged on TV shows. It's being waged in movies. It's being waged on social media, on talk shows. It's being waged in our colleges. It's being waged in our public schools, in our businesses. And what most Christians don't understand is the more our society and culture mock Christianity, demean Christianity, the more they take away and chip away at our freedoms. It's not just in America. As I said, 5.6 billion people living where there is no religious freedom. Even today, as we sit in here enjoying our spiritual freedom, there are people that are Christians around the world in Nigeria, in Sudan, in Indonesia, whose pastors have been beaten and killed, whose church buildings have been burned down, simply because they believe the same things we believe. So what can we do? How do we respond? Do we really believe in religious freedom? Do we really believe in this principle that Baptists have held for so long and so closely? Well, if you do, the first thing you can do is pray. You can pray for America. You can pray for those that are hurting around the world. And you can pray for our leaders. The Bible says to pray for our leaders. The second thing you can do is you can learn about religious freedom and how important and precious it is. The problem for many Christians is we take it for granted and we don't think anything about it. We don't understand how it is being chipped away. You and I, as we learn, we need to be vigilant. Be aware. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Listen. When you hear someone say, separation of church and state, try to understand what they are saying, because most of the time, what they are saying is that the church has no place in the state, that Christians have no place in the marketplace. That's not what's in our Constitution. We have to be the voice for people around the world that have no voice. We have to be the voice for people who who are being persecuted because of the lack of religious freedom. And most importantly, and probably the hardest thing for us to get through our heads, is we must be the defenders, the bulwark, the, the standing against the wall of defining and defending religious freedom for all faiths. All faiths. You see, religious freedom is not a majority-based faith. 
Religious freedom is not based on what faith is the strongest at the time. Because if it was, there may come a day when your religious faith is not in the majority. Then how much would you be for religious freedom? You see, you and I need to speak up. We need to stand out any time people of faith are persecuted or demeaned. Even if their faith is totally different from ours. When a Muslim group decides to build a mosque somewhere near where we are, it should be Baptists that are first to stand up and say, they have a right. You say, well, I don't agree with them. I don't agree with what they may teach or what they may preach. That doesn't matter. We live in a free country where we try to guarantee the rights of every person, even the right of a person to walk away from God. We must stand on that religious freedom. And the moment we we give in, the moment we step back, the culture and the world steps in and fills the gap. We need to pray. We need to learn. And then we need to live. Exercise your religious freedom. Live it out. Don't be silenced. Share your faith. Live out the principles that you believe. Yes, you might be mocked. Yes, you might be made fun of. Yes, people might talk about you or push against you. But that's what religious freedom is about. Doesn't mean that you're supposed to coerce or ridicule or even judge people who have a different faith than you. It just simply means you be a light in the darkness. We have the freedom to shine and we continue to hide it. And then lastly, be a good citizen. We need to be a good citizen. The Bible says continually, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 21, render unto Caesars that which is Caesars. Paul talks about it in Romans 13, about the Roman government. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2, 13, that we are to act responsibly. That means you and I need to obey the laws of the land. That's what it means to be a good citizen, to obey the laws. And the only time that we have a right to not obey the laws is when they come up against the truth of the Word of God. You see, the early Christians rendered unto Caesar until they decided that Everyone had to bow down and worship Caesar. And that's when the Christian said, I can't go there. You and I need to be good citizens and obey the law. Pay your taxes. Pray for your leaders. And probably most importantly, vote. We need to vote. And the problem in the church is we've become such one-issue people. I only vote according to this issue. Marriage or abortion or gun rights or whatever it is that you're one I'm person according to this one issue and we've lost what you need to ask yourself when you go into that election booth when you begin to pray about who you're supposed to vote for you need to ask yourself will this person defend the constitution and defend religious freedom or will they tear down the constitution and demean and belittle religious freedom that's where we stand millions of people today are dying for the very right we have right now to be in this room. Many people would give everything they had to be able to decide this morning after losing an hour of sleep whether or not they wanted to go to church or not because many don't have that choice. Many, it's forced upon them. To be able to decide whether you wanted to sing or not or you wanted to read the Bible or you wanted to listen or you wanted to respond. All of those are based in our freedom of religion and it's not the government that gives it to us. It's God who gives it to us. The government is the guarantor of it. And we need to hold the government accountable. I'm going to end with this. An early Baptist declared this upon being persecuted. Every state religion on earth is religious tyranny. And as long as there is left upon this earth any state religion in any land, my task as a Christian and a Baptist is unfinished. He said, let Caesar's due be paid to Caesar and his throne, but conscience and soul 
were made to be God's alone. Let's pray.